0: Yeah, let's pray. <laughs> Jesus, we've sung about you. We have hopefully turned our hearts and our minds towards you. God, in your word, it says that all we get is you. And that should be enough. And yet, in a culture that we live in, it doesn't seem to be enough. It doesn't seem that, that, that our relationship with our creator, with, with a God who is above all things, is enough for our frenetic, our, our hyped, our, our distracted world that we live in. I pray, Lord Jesus, that you would instill in us once again that sense of reverence, that sense of awe. Lord, you are worth everything. You are everything. And for those of us perhaps who are distracted, those of us who are perhaps looking to things to fulfill us, to give us meaning. I pray, Lord Jesus, that our eyes would turn back to you once again. pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, good morning and welcome. And uh, that may be the weirdest opening sermon uh, video you've ever seen. Um, we are continuing on a sermon, we, a series we started off uh, almost at the beginning of summer called Fake News. Uh, the whole idea about the series was, is to kind of really tackle some tough so- uh, subjects. Now, First things first, let me just say uh, a couple of things. One, you have been very gracious with me, and I want to say thank you for that. Whenever I think about topics we've talked about, so we've looked at, um, is the Bible confusing? Does the Bible contradict itself? Is God angry with me? Um, What's the purpose of the church? And and topics like that. And you have to realize, these are not just surface-level topics. These actually are topics that uh, require a little bit of depth. And we've done a lot of history throughout this as well. And for those of you who don't like history, apologies. But for those of you who love history, well, you're welcome. So the whole idea behind this series is to talk about topics that are being talked about in in the culture, in the world, and and kind of um, unpack them a little bit. They've been a little bit heady, and once we kind of kick back in September to our normal uh, sermon series, which I'm working on right now, it will get back to whatever normal is for this church. But this has been a very deep topic and a deep series because... As I said to you before, I don't like answering questions with just simply, oh, well, here's, here's a tweet, or here's a headline, or here's, here's like, it just it, it, it bugs me. Easy answers don't really kind of answer the questions I really have. And so this series has been like that. Um, last week, we looked at this idea of the government. I'm not going to recap it too much because um, it's, it's, it's too much content to kind of, kind of summarize. But basically, the, the point was this. How do we as Christians interact with our world, and and how do we interact with the government? And what we did is we looked through history. We saw the first three centuries of the church, and we saw that Christians at that point in time were hunted down by the Roman government, right? And so they were actually, and I showed you the whole list of Roman emperors who actively were persecuting Christians. And then we looked at the Middle Ages, and we saw how the church was the predominant cultural influence. But then we got to the 17th century, what we call the enlightenment. And we realized at that point in time, there's a shift. And the shift was the culture went one way and the church went another way. And that's kind of where we are today. And that's kind of what we looked at last week. We looked at this idea of preference, politics, or position. And we said that preference is what I choose. And what I mean by that is people can have whatever preferences they want. And the reason I say that is because sometimes we have to kind of justify our preferences. We have to, like, like. Nowhere in the Bible does it say spicy chicken wings are great, but we all know that they are, right? And so it's my preference for that, but that doesn't mean that I could use the Bible or politics or anything to justify that. It's just my preference, right? We talk about politics. This is where I stand. And I said to you last week as well too, there is no government, there is no church, there is no pastor, there is nobody that speaks primarily for God. There is no political party that best represents God. Now... You can have a conversation, well, this political party really uh, views the poor this way. And like, yeah, absolutely. Well, this political party really thinks of, like, okay, yeah, but nobody does. And so when Christians align themselves with politics, we are kind of giving up a little bit of what's really important. Now, it does not mean we don't get involved in the public square, as it were. I said to you last week that if you were to ask me about government, I would have way more of a fiscal kind of a outlook on what I want the government to do. And quite honestly, I would prefer the government to stay out of church. Um, the reason is is because I don't want the government telling me how to interpret the Bible. One of the things I was going to do last week, but I didn't because it was just too much. But um, I talked a little bit about this idea of uh, when the government and, and churches get too enmeshed, what can happen? And one of the best examples of this, believe it or not, is, uh, is the 1930s and Nazism. When, when you look at how the, the rise of, of the Nazi regime in, in Germany took place, one of the things you realize in the very first part there is they silenced the churches. They began to tell the churches what they could say, how they could speak, and what they could preach. As, and, and, and the reason they did that is because the church, they understood, and they understand this very well, is that the church is like the conscience of culture. And if you can transform, if you can change, if you can alter then everything else altered. So the first thing they did before they did anything else, all the other horrific things they did, the first thing they did was silence the church. And again, Dietrich Bonhoeffer and, and quite a few kind of um, document this in their own writing. Uh, so that's what we looked at last week. Now this morning, I said to you, uh, last week we talked a lot of American stuff. We talked about separation of church and state. Apologies. This morning we're going to do a lot more Canadian content. So, uh, we're going to wrap up the series, and we're going to wrap up the series kind of like we started, and we're going to look at the church. So, one of the things I want to answer this morning is how did we get here with church? Like, how did we end up here? And what I mean to end up here is we look at church in Canada today, and it, it, it's a very, it's a huge variety of, of what exists and what doesn't exist up there right now. How did we end up here? So, basically, we're going to kind of continue on from the Enlightenment to today, and I'm going to give you an insider. Now, one of the things I've gotten the opportunity to do is I get to kind of mentor young pastors, and I always say the same thing to the young pastors. I have this kind of the spiel, this kind of little thing I say to them. I say, "Listen, have you ever seen the movie Wizard of Oz?" And most of them are like Wizard what? am uh, like, so in the movie The Wizard of Oz, there's this great scene where Dorothy is in front of the Great Oz, right? And Oz is this huge head, and it's like thunder, and there's smoke, and 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 Dorothy and and her friends are like in front of Oz, like ah, right. And then Toto goes over to this little curtain and he pulls the curtain inside, and there's this little fat guy pulling these levers, right and, and Oz is pay no attention to you know and, and they're like, "Well, who's this?" right?" And they find out, this is Oz. this is this this guy, this, these levers, is the thing that is behind all of this. And I say to young pastors, that's kind of what church is like. You have an Oz moment as a pastor where you, where you look at a church and say, this, this majesty, this grandeur, all this stuff." And you peek behind, you're like, this is what's running the machine? Like, this kind of seems a little scary, a little terrifying, and maybe a little bit ridiculous as well, too. Well, what I want to do to you this morning is I want to continue on a little bit about this entire theme and talk about church. But I'm going to talk about it in in insider's perspective. If you're here this morning and you're visiting, welcome. And, And sit back. And if you're not even a Christian this morning, you're here like... I just wanted it, and I'm waiting for the movie to start. It, 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 we'll get there in a moment. But I, what I want to do is, I want to talk to you a little bit uh, about church this morning and where we are today and, and where have we kind of fallen apart a little bit. And to do that, we need to talk about a very famous Canadian that many of you may not have known, a guy named Marshall McLuhan. If any of you have ever studied uh, media or, or uh, anything like that, Marshall McLuhan is a very famous figure for that. And let me give you uh, some background. again. This is the Canadian content. Marshall McLuhan studied at the University of Manitoba and the University of Cambridge before becoming a lecturer at the University of Toronto. He rose to prominence in the 1960s for his work as a media theorist and for coining the term Global Village. You've been using the term Global Village today, but did you know that this is the guy that came up with it? And it was a Canadian, so like, whoo, that's great, right? Now, here's what Marshall McLuhan really talked about. McLuhan's preeminent theory was his idea that human history could be divided into four eras, the acoustic age, the literary age, the print age, and the electronic age. He outlined the concept in a 1962 book called The Gutenberg Galaxy. Now, what I want you to understand is this is a 1962 book. This is a book that Marshall McLuhan was writing, talking about the future. Remember, in the 1960s, electronics and computer and internet and all that didn't exist. So Marshall McLuhan was using his his understanding of technology and looking ahead in the future. And this is what he said about technology. He predicted the world was entering the fourth uh, electronic age, which would be characterized, now watch this, by a community of people brought together by technology. So remember, in the 1960s, you had the race to the moon. You had computers that used like like transistors, and like, like it, it looked more like a Frankenstein movie than it actually did what you have today. But but uh, Marshall McLuhan saw all this technology and realized something. This technology was going to be something that would unite cultures together. And again, at that point in time, no one had ever thought this before. People were thinking about technology as in... Um, uh, industry and, 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 uh, and fridges and, and cars. But he was saying, no, 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 the electronic age is actually going to do something different to it. So he talked about this and in his next book, understanding media, he said this in the follow-up book, understanding media, he expanded the theory to show the method of communication rather than the information itself would come to be the most influential fact of the electric age. So here's what he's saying. Okay. It's a very famous statement that he coined. I'm going to show it to you. He soon became a TV personality making regular appearances to explain his theory of why the medium is the message. Now, this is what Marshall McLuhan was saying. How you say something is almost more important than what you are saying. Now this is this was groundbreaking back in the like late 1960s early 70s because at that point in time remember there were like only like three channels on te- on television right like when you look back to ra- television ratings so today for example one of the highest rated shows on TV right now could be like Game of Thrones, Walking Dead, Modern Family right these shows get like a viewership of like 15 to 18 to 20 million and people think that's amazing right Back in the 1970s, early 1970s, shows like Dukes of Hazzard and, or, or All in the Family or any of these kind of 1970s shows would get like 40 million people watching them because that's all that was on television, right? So you have to remember the media back then, as Marshall McLuhan's looking at it, was really a really rough template to what we have today. But he said something so interesting. He says, listen, what you say gets drowned out by how you say it. And this is the kind of the topic we want to talk about this morning, because every week we've looked at like artificial intelligence, toxoplasmosis, that was fun, right? We've been looking at different things, saying, okay, how do these things influence us? Well, today what we want to talk about, the church, and we want to say, what is the church saying, and how is the church saying it? And are these two things compatible? So the video clip you saw there is, of course, of TMZ, and of, of Justin Bieber, and of course at the Hillsong Conference. Now, a couple of things real quick here. I'm not picking on Justin Bieber. His, his very publicized life is rather unfortunate because, you know, for, for a young man to have that much fame, to have that much wealth, it's going to twist you. Whether you like it or not, it's going to twist you. And can we blame him? No. As a matter of fact, the, New, the Old Testament kings had the exact same thing. The Roman emperors, the exact same thing. That much power, that much fame, that many people around you say, no, no, that's a great idea. Right? Uh, one psychologist called it the Michael Jackson syndrome. Or the Elvis syndrome, right? You have this person that's such a central personality. You have all these people that surround them and say, yeah, that's a great idea. You should buy a monkey and walk around with it. That's a fantastic idea. And yes, your park needs giraffes. And sure, you know, like this is stuff that you go, doesn't anybody say it? And I'm like, if you say that to them, you get fired, right? And so the reason I showed that is because what we have to say to ourselves is how does the world view church today? And if a show like TMZ, which is, for those of you who don't know, it's just basically a gossip show, it's vicious, it's mean, and it's, it's, it's raw, it's not anything I'd, I recommend even to watch, but that came up on my, on my Facebook feed. I'm like, oh my gosh, this is too perfect. I got I to gotta show this. How does the world view church today? That's the question we have to ask ourselves, because as we look throughout history, the church had a certain place now within, within culture, but today it has a completely different place. And so we have to ask ourselves, what is a medium, and does it drown out the message? A guy by the name of Neil Postman took Marshall McLuhan's work, and he wrote a book. By the way, it's a book I think everyone should read. It's called Amusing Ourselves to Death. It came out in 1985. It's still relevant today. But uh, in his book, Neil Postman talks about how television alters the message. And this is what he says about religion. On television, religion, like everything else, is presented quite simply and without apology as an entertainment. Everything that makes religion an historic, profound, sacred human activity is stripped away. There is no ritual, no dogma, no tradition, no theology, and above all, no sense of spiritual transcendence. He wrote this in 1985. uh, Neil Postman's not a Christian. He's he was actually an atheistic Jew. He he taught at uh, at NYU in media studies there. But this is the guy that's saying this about church back in the 1980s. 1985, 1986. By the way, his books, Technopoly, End of Childhood, uh, just fantastic books. You could read book after book of his, and and it still hits my top 20 of uh, of great books to read. But the important thing is this. What Neil Postman and what Marshall McLuhan have both said to us is that how we do things and how how we talk about things is as important as what we are saying. So let's look at the problem here, because there's a bit of a problem, and we have to address this first and foremost. And again, remember I said to you that we're going to stick with Canadian content. So I came across this. This was in um, um, uh, Maclean's Magazine uh, last year, and it basically tracked the religious movements in Canada. So it looked at 1946 to 2015, and basically you can see whether it's a red or the blue, the red dots are attended religious services in the last seven days, the weekly attendance at religious services. So you'll see. At, uh, in 1946, about 68% of people in Canada attended some sort of religious service. In 2015, it's now under 10%. And uh, the new um, uh, survey that just went, that came out has some of the data is starting to come out. So people are starting to walk through it a little bit. It is now estimated that in Canada, it's about 5%. Uh, five to six percent of people attend a religious service uh, on a reg- regular basis. And just so you know, regular basis has now been redefined as two out of four times uh, in a month. So previously, regular would be, you know, every Sunday. Now it's two out of four Sundays. That is now considered regular. So what's interesting is there's been some statistics about the demise of the church. So, for example, if you say that four, uh, you know, regular attendance is four out of four Sundays a month and you attend three out of four Sundays, well, that's a drop of 25%. If you attend two out of four, that's a drop of 50%. So a lot of the headlines you see about the demise of the church, it's not the demise of the church. It's the irregularity of the church. And so it's not people have stopped believing in God. It's not that people stopped going to church. It's just that Sundays are very busy. And we acknowledge that. And in Canada, we, you know, summertime, every pastor knows that summertime is people heading to the cottages, the beaches. We get such little nice weather. I get it. And many of you are so pale, you need sun. I get that too, right? So hit the beaches, do what you need to, right? But I'm just saying to you that in Canada, the weather affects us even more than we realize. So the irregularity of a church attendance is part of it. Now, as I've taught in the past, and I will just... Just throw this out there. And again, if you want to go back to listen to my first sermon on this, it is online on our website. But basically, I said to you that church, however you view church, is how you kind of view God. And the two go hand in hand. Now, I know people kind of like, well, no, I can be be spiritual at home. No, you can't. And the reason I say you can't is because... um, when we're at home on ourselves, there's nothing external to push us into spiritual practices or discipline, right? And so I've, I've taught this. I'm not going to go over this too much. But really how you view church and that engagement, that, that faith community, is in direct proportion to your spiritual journey and your maturity. So what we see in Canada is a problem. Now, the reason this is a problem is because we have created an industry in Canada. And by the way, I'm going to be very honest with you this morning about what it means to be a pastor and what it looks like to be a Christian today in Canada. The problem is, is if you're a pastor, if you are a priest, whether whatever denomination, you're kind of responsible for what happens Sunday morning. And if from 1946 to 2015, and again, it's probably around that low edge of 5 to 6% of people, then you have to ask yourself, is what are we doing Sunday mornings? What, what exactly, how do we justify our existence? So the problem as attendance declines, churches are looking for ways to fill the pews. Some have changed theology i e mainline churches. others have offered more attractional entertainment model of sunday mornings now here's what's interesting if you say, for example, you have a church that holds four hundred people. I remember um, I worked at a church that it was uh, it had a balcony if those, if you can believe that, and so it had a balcony had a main th- part there, and the church could fit about six hundred people well. We were having about, you know, two, three hundred people showing up on a Sunday morning. We had to close the balcony down because like that's where all the youth went. right? They just hung out up there, right? So we had to close that down and put people on the main floors. Now, the point was, the church was built probably in a, around the 1970s. And at that point in time, it's like, yeah, we we're filling this place up. But as, as attendance patterns have decreased, you are now seeing a church that's like, okay, it can hold 600 people, but now it's holding maybe half. Some churches is a third, others it's even a quarter. And this is what's happening on Sunday mornings is that every pastor is looking out at, the, uh, at the, what, what the container holds and saying, ooh, we got a lot of empty spaces, right? So mainline churches, when i use the word mainline, really I'm talking about Anglican, uh, Presbyterian, United, and again, like these are more of the traditional churches. What they've decided to do, and this happened like a long time ago, they decided, you know what? We are going to concentrate on these aspects, and we're going to say this this part of the Bible we think is a little more metaphor, or we don't think applies today. And again, if that's your traditional background, it, again, it's preference. I'm not here to say yes or no. I'm just here to say that's what they decided. But unfortunately, that has not corrected the decline, and um, some statisticians say but 10, 15 years from now, You're going to see a lot of these churches closing or being bought out by other organizations or being turned into restaurants or um, actually there's a place in Drayton that I deliver milk to on my route there. Uh, I started delivering milk two and a half years ago. There's a nice little United Church. It's now Seniors Complex. That happened in two and a half years. One day I saw that the church is closed. I'm like, oh, the church is closed. That's too bad. And the next day is now Seniors Complex going to be opened up here in a couple of months. I'm like, oh. Right, So we have all these buildings, but they're empty and they're emptying. Now, remember I've said to you before as well, and by the way, if you're visiting and I use a phrase, I said to you before, apologies, church is a bit of a machine. The machine needs resources and resources have to keep this thing going. And the bigger the machine, the more resources. So if you were a pastor, or if you were a, uh, a leadership team, you're like, oh, we got like, to pay the bills of this thing and that thing. I know of one church that had to do a huge fundraiser to repair the roof because the roof cost would be $300,000 and the church had dwindled down to 125 people. That was an enormous price tag for the church. This is a reality of what we're living in. Again, remember I said to you this morning, I'm going to be completely honest to you with what's going on because until you understand what's happening, you can't really understand why people are doing what they're doing as far as the shift goes. So the problem is, is that attendance continues to decline in that. So what, what, what's some of the solutions we think about? Well, in 1975, something happened. Something remarkable happened. This guy by the name of Bill Hybels comes along. And Bill Hybels says, you know what? The church for too long has had too many barriers for people to get to it. And so Bill Hybels said this about the church, and this is what was kind of recorded about it. In 1975, a church was started in Willow Creek Theater in Palatine, Illinois. Its mission was to reach irreligious people and turn them into fully devoted followers of Christ. Its approach was to present an uncompromising biblical message in irrelevant terms that these people would understand. So what Bill Hybels decided to do is say, listen, what reasons do people not attend church? What reasons do people not attend church? Right? What do people not attend church? And, and what parts of that can we say, okay, like if someone doesn't attend church because they don't think Jesus is the only way, I can't do much about that. But what is it that they don't like? And so he went through, and what he actually did, literally, is he went around Illinois where he was and just knocked door to door, saying, hey, I'm not here to ask for anything. I'm just asking you why you don't go to church. Well, okay. So he he took notes, and he created a church called Willow Creek for that. Now, this is 1975. And in 1975, people were trying some different things about how do we get people back in church. Well, fast forward to 2000, Sorry, before we fast forward to 2005, one of the things I want to say real quick before we kind of beat up on Bill Hybels in Willow Creek is I like Bill Hybels. I think he's one of the best communicators out there today, and I think there's an honesty about him that I don't think a lot of people have. And what Bill Hybels said back in 1975 is the exact same thing Paul says in Corinthians. He, Paul says this, listen, I'm going to do whatever I can to get people to hear about Jesus, but not everyone's going to respond. Right? So Paul says, to the Jews, I became like a Jew to win the Jews. To those under the law, I became like one under the law, though I myself am not under the law. So as to win those under the law, to those not having the law, I became like one not having the law, though I am not free from God's law, but I am under Christ's law. So as to win those not having the law, to the weak, I became weak, to the win the weak, I've become all things to all people so that by all possible means I might save some. And this is Paul saying, listen, I'm going to go to where people are at. I'm going to talk to them as they need to be be talked to. And hopefully in that conversation, some of them are going to get it. Some of them are going to embrace Jesus. And Bill Hybels, when he talks about the early days of Willow Creek, this is what he said. That we as a church have created so many barriers, like Sunday morning, got to wear a suit, or, or, or this is what you have to do, and that's what you have to do. There's a secret handshake. There isn't, but it feels like there is. And, and people know to sit down, stand up, you know, like, uh, you know, you put your left foot in, you put your left foot out, and you... Like, like there's all these rituals that the church had, and that people are like, I don't understand. And so Bill just said, what needed to be said, that is, how can we remove all this junk so people can embrace Jesus? And so, as we talk about Willow Creek, I'm not going to talk about it in terms of saying it's bad or not. I'm just going to say, Bill started off with this idea of saying, how do we get Jesus to the people? And that is actually, I think, everybody's conversation. Now, let's fast forward to 2005. By 2005, Willow Creek, as a church, as, as a multiple campuses, was reaching 20,000 people on a weekly basis. That is not a small number. And what happened was that this spawned a whole bunch of conferences and books and speaking tours, right? Because everybody's saying, how do we get people in our church? And here's a church in Illinois where people are going to church. Not just people, but 20,000 people are going to the church. The mechanism was enormous, right? And so people go, oh, this is what people want. They want a Willow Creek-like church. And I remember as a young pastor, not really quite understanding all of this, but realizing that, oh, you know what? I'm hearing about this, and I remember as well, by the time it reached us in Canada, when I was in Bible college at that time, I remember sitting in a class, and our teacher was telling us about this church called Willow Creek. We hadn't heard about it. We didn't know. We didn't have the internet back then, right? And so we just, you hear these things by kind of, and, and people are like, right, wow, that can't be a Christian church. How could it be a church reading 20,000? That, that doesn't seem right. And I remember one day uh, I had a chance to actually go to Chicago to Willow Creek, and I sat in one of their services. It was great, and it was worship, and it was teaching, and people were like talking about it as if it was bad. I'm like, no, 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 this is great. This is this is actually kind of cool. They're talking with Jesus. They're not really compromising anything. So you know, it's it's working. Now, what I didn't know is that most people on the stage there were professionals. They were paid, paid musicians, paid worship leader, paid everything. Right? I didn't know that. Back in the day, we just had volunteers. Right? But back, uh, Chicago realized that. You know, if you really want people to worship God, you need, a, you need like a session guitar player. You know, and they need like a, a rack and you need these great, you know, and, and that could be the case. And it seemed to work for them. So what happens was, and Willow Creek did do something really well, but it also created this movement called the megachurch movement, which I feel like if Godzilla was going to fight somebody, the megachurch would be the great thing to talk about. Now, let me tell you about the megachurch real quick here. There's a great article about it. It was, it was written back uh, before we kind of look back, going, huh, okay, interesting. A guy by the name of Lyle Shaler, who writes for Christianity Today, said this about the megachurch. The emergence of the megachurch is the most important development of modern Christian history. You can be sentimental about small congregation, like the small corner grocery store or a small drug store, but they simply can't meet the expectations that people carry with them today. Now, this is actually fantastic. What he's saying is, listen, we live in a very... Modern culture and people have lots of tastes, and the small church can't meet that. Right? You can't have a professional band. You don't have the budget for that. You, you you can't do it. Therefore, you need to get bigger so that you have more resources to have all this stuff. And he was saying what people were thinking. And now in America and in Canada, there are mega churches. There are large churches, and they tend to get a lot of the uh, a lot of publicity. People talk about them, people think about them, the people who are past them get, get asked to speak other places, right? But the interesting thing about small churches or megachurches is when you look at the uh, breakdown of the megachurch movement, it's only about a couple of percentage points of overall churches. 80% of the churches in Canada and America are 150, or sorry, 200 people and under, 80% of churches. Right? But of those 80% of the churches, they're all trying to be the, you know, a mega church is what every pastor wants. The job is to grow a church, to have this type of thing. So let me let me show it to you this way. When Christianity was first formed, we didn't have church buildings. We just had people's homes. Right? In the book of Acts, we see that people met in people's homes. That is what church was. We fast forward to, and we talked about this last week, to after the 300s, when Constantine comes along, and all of a sudden, this thing called a church building emerges. It never existed before this, right? But now, all of a sudden, it became this idea of, like, okay, we have a church building. And church building in the Middle Ages was these cathedrals. It was this, these incredible things. Well, today now, churches look like this. And they are, like, like the highest forms of technology. They are, um, they are like, like, slick, and, and like, like they're all, like, everything. As a matter of fact, that church picture you see there, um, if I was to say to you, you know, where do you think this place was? Where where, where was this church built? It's a brand new church. I I, I would have guessed Texas. Everything's bigger in Texas, right? I would have said maybe Los Angeles or maybe New York. That church there, uh, the the picture of the church there, is actually South Africa. It's a brand new 6500 auditorium built in South Africa, which is so interesting to me that one of the things we've transported across the sea is this idea of like how we do church here. It's like, oh, okay, that's kind of interesting. So basically what you need to understand about churches today is, it's Jesus and. So in the first three centuries, when people came to Christ, they would say to them, listen, you can be a Christ follower, but it might cost you your life. It may cost you your property. It may cost you your relationships. But you get Jesus. You get Jesus. Now it's like, hey, come to our church because you get uh, a, a diet plan. Uh, we have a workout group. Uh, we have, uh, we, like, and it's, it's Jesus' hand, right? Because it, Jesus is no longer enough. He doesn't pack in the rooms like he used to right? It's, it's, it's Jesus and it's like Jesus and this, and we have this slick thing going on. We have this happening. We have this going on. And this is what we need to do. And this is how we need to get people in. And, and we look great. And aren't we cool? And look, our pastor, he's got a beard and, and he's got tattoos and, and he's, he's, he hangs out with these famous people. And, and it's like, oh, it's Jesus and, right? It's Jesus and. That's kind of what church has almost been like today is Jesus' hand. Because Jesus is no longer cool enough. Jesus is no longer hip enough. He's no longer, you know. So, you know, like whatever you like, whatever interest you have, is it, is it, is it craft beer? Is it, is it working out? Is it going for running? Is it, is it mountain biking? Is it, is it a diet plan? Well, we've got that for you in our church. Come on out. Because Jesus doesn't really sell anymore. Because we have now had a different way of looking at talking about the medium being the message. So this is where we've kind of come to today. And this is kind of what people have. Now, there are consequences. And this is what we have to talk about. For example, attendance continues to decline, but spending continues to increase. So if you're a business person and you said to you, you know, in your employee says, hey, I need to spend more money in my division, but look at all the profits I'm making. You say, well, that's a good investment. Because look at the money they're returning. If another employee comes, to you and say, listen, I need more money, but I'm just losing money. You go, you know what? I don't think so. The interesting thing about the mechanism of church today in Canada is we are spending more money than we ever have for less amount of people. We are saying, hey. We're going to build this huge building. Or we're going to have this thing. We're going to have the internet this. And we're going to have Twitter that. And we're going to have all this stuff. It's, 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 it just keeps shrinking. It's such an interesting conversation. It's one pastors hate to have because it kind of says something about us. What it says about us is that we're a little insecure. It's we're a little unsure of ourselves. And we may not think that God is actually cool anymore. Right? I was listening to this one person. Well, his name is Francis Chan. Um... And he, was, he was, uh, I was, I listened to this podcast, listen to sermons. He said this. I thought it was so interesting. He goes, you know what? We have a world today where 20-somethings would get up and go across the, uh, you know, the oceans to the, some village to something and do, like dig a well or, or feed this or plant that or microfinance this. But they won't live holiness right now. They won't engage in the local church. They won't kill what us. What, is, what have we done to churches where we have now created this environment where you must go elsewhere or you must be cool here or get a picture with this child that's a different ethnicity than you or, or you know, like, like this beach where you are and hashtag blessed. Like, like, what is wrong with us that we think that's what it means to be a Christ follower? We are spending more money on conferences, on buildings, on programs, on staff, on all of this stuff. But the honest truth is simply this. And this is what pastors don't want to talk about. And again, this is why this is kind of a painful sermon this morning. We are getting less and less amount of people to believe in Jesus. We are investing tons of money, but we are having a diminished return in our culture. Our cultural impact is almost the point now where we are considered jokes. You know, the only group that you could actually pick on in our culture today is Christians. You can pick on everybody else. You can't. I'm oh, sorry. You can't pick on anybody else. You can't pick on anybody racially, which is good, by the way. Just to be clear about that. Uh, you can't pick. You can't pick on anybody for anything. But the butt of every joke can always be a Christian. Why? Because we are that displaced now from being seen as relevant as anything else. So we we, we get that. And do we deserve that? I actually kind of think we do. And this is the part that is kind of really painful for me. Is that I've been a uh, a Christian for gosh, like thirty plus years of my life, uh, a bit more than that. I've been a pastor for twenty plus years, and one of the things that I've noticed as being a pastor is that we say things. Pastors say a lot of things, and probably too much sometimes, or maybe not enough. I don't. I don't know whichever way you want to go with that. But one of the things we don't say about is that why do we really exist? What's our purpose? Like, what are we trying to do? What is the mechanism of a church trying to do, right? And that's the thing that no one wants to talk about, right? And so because entertainment is the predominant method in our culture, everything has to be entertaining. School has to be entertaining, right? Healthcare has to be, everything has to be entertaining, right? It's just, if you're bored, like, that's the worst thing any could ever say, it's boring, <gasps> Boring? No, no, we're not boring. Look, we're juggling, right? Um, like, look, look, we're, we look, look look, at my tattoo or look at my hair. or uh, We don't want to be boring. We, we, we don't want to be boring. In fact, we want to be cool, right? And so it's like we've gone the other direction. So what's the point of this, right? The church has never spent more money for increasingly diminished returns. But there's another consequence to this as well, too. And this is one that I, I hesitated to put in there, but I thought, ah, what, what the heck? I, I've already jumped this far. Why not? Um, the New York Times ran this article in 2010, and this 2010 article was uh, kind of a culmination of all this data they've been uh, looking at. So the data was this. Let's take a look at pastors and priests in America and say, hey, how's this group doing, right? So professionally, we know that, you know, teachers and lawyers and, and factory workers and, and retail, we, we know all that. But what about pastors? And this is what they found. Members of the clergy now suffer from obesity, hypertension, and depression at rates higher than most Americans. So what they are finding now is this group of people that used to be pastors. And again, whatever image comes to your mind with that, historically, this has actually been a pretty good group of people health-wise. Not anymore. As a matter of fact, it goes on to say this. Public health experts who have led the studies caution that there is no simple explanation of why so many members of a profession once associated with rosy cheek longevity have become so unhealthy and unhappy. Being a pastor today absolutely stinks because all you have to do is is you're trying to do the best you can with with God and, and, and all the spiritual parts, but there's also... Kind of like church politics can get into it as well too. Then there's like people who don't like you and there's all sorts of stuff going on. And as a pastor, you're like, ah, right? I talked to many pastors, obviously, many of my friends. And one of the things that's kind of interesting is that a lot of pastors are now at the point where like, I don't know what to do. I don't know what to do. I, 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 don't know what to do. I, I preach a pretty good sermon. I, I spend some time on it. All people do is critique it. Or they leave to go to another church. I, one of my friends uh, is a great pastor. He's a fantastic guy. He told me that in the city that he, in the town that he ministers in, half the population goes this large church 20 minutes away. The other half goes another large church 30 minutes away. Because it's a better show. And he's faithfully serving in his community. And people decide you know what? We're going to go half hour, 45 minutes away to this church. And we're going to go half hour, 45 minutes away to this church. And he's like, what do I do? And then he says to me that my board and my elders and my staff are looking at me like, fill the church, pastor. And he's like, how huh? do you understand why we're burning out? It's because we are trying to fight against a cultural shift that's taking place. And so pastors are now becoming this endangered species. As a matter of fact, I asked my wife this, and, and, I, and, and she told me, it's like, you haven't done the research enough, but basically... I graduated a class, but 104 students. It wasn't a big Bible college, but it's a pretty big one. And I tried to figure out how many are still in ministry, and my wife wants to put the disclaimer that I'm not 100% sure about this number, but I think it's about 20. 20 of us are still in ministry of 104 people, approximately, give or take a little bit. Bible colleges, seminaries are facing this question of people not wanting to pursue this as an occupation, kind of rightfully so, because it's not guaranteed as far as a life and, and pay and all that kind of stuff. Now, you're sitting here looking at me like, does he need a raise? What, what is it? Why, why is he telling you? I'm not telling you this. The reason I'm telling you this is because, simply put, the church in North America, the church in Canada, is at a very much of a crisis point. I was going to call this sermon Reformation 2.0, Because there has to be something that shifts in our culture, or else we are going to kind of go over the cliff. So the consequence is that pastors are now even more and more um, having a problem with it. Um, Now look at this as well, too. Willow Creek, in 2007, did this uh, enormous service called the Reveal Survey. And basically what Willow Creek did was, and by the way, this is why I like Bill Hybels. Bill Hybels was honest. He did this survey within the church of the 20,000 people, and he said, hey, How's the spiritual health of people in our church? Well, lots of people. How's the spiritual health? And they did this survey, and Bill Hybels, if he was like other pastors, he would have hid this information because it was not pretty. So the article says this. After modeling a seeker-sensitive approach to church growth for three decades, Will Creek Community Church now plans to gear its weekend services, watch this, toward mature believers seeking to grow in their faith. So for, since 1975 to about 2007, Will Creek was like, okay, we want to get to the seekers. We want to get to these people. But then they realized something once they started actually looking at the data in their churches is that all these people that go to the churches aren't growing in their faith. They spent all this money and all these resources, and they're not actually developing people in their faith. And so after the survey, they realized, wow, We need to shift things. And people don't realize this, but Willow Creek has now shifted how it does church. Look what it goes on to say. The change comes on the heels of an ongoing four-year research effort first made public late last summer in Reveal, Where Are You? Hawkins, who is the executive pastor, said during an annual student ministries conference in April that Willow Creek would also replace its midweek services with classes on theology and the Bible. Because what they realized is people were attending their church, but they didn't know the basics of anything. They didn't know the Bible. They didn't know any of theology. And you're like, well, theology, that's what Bible calls pastors or or, or whatnot. No, it's not. Theology simply means knowledge of God. Theology. That's all it means. And Willow Creek realized something, that we are having all these people show up, but they're not really growing in their faith. You get twenty thousand people on a weekly basis. Multiple campuses. They have a staff that outnumbers our church, both our churches. Right, hundreds of people on staff, and they realized that. Wait a minute, we're spending all this money. We're putting all this effort, and these people don't even love Jesus. They're not even growing in their faith. And so they shift. And they actually came out with another book called Move. And Move is about moving people through four stages of spiritual growth, which, by the way, I'm reading right now because a friend of mine recommended it to me. He's like, oh, you know, your church sounds like this. You should read this book. I'm like, oh, okay. So I'm reading it right now, and it's fascinating. Will Creek realized something about this. Now, let's wrap this up because it's not all bad news. And we'll get to that in a second. A guy by the name of Carl Vader somebody I really like, a writer. He writes this blog on Christianity called Small Church, the reason why I like it, right? He, came this, he wrote this article, says, the church does not exist to entertain us or bore us. And this is what he says. I don't go to church to be entertained. I also don't go to be bored. I go to worship. I go to read and hear from God's word. I go to be taught. I go to be challenged. I go to be discipled. I go to fellowship with other believers. I go to be inspired into action. He says, "Listen, the problem with church today is people have expectations that are not really about faith. You want to get healthy? Fantastic. Go to a gym. It's not really what the church is about. You want to have friends who like to knit? Fantastic. You want to have friends who like to mountain bike or do what? Great. But does the church have to have a pastor of that? Although, by the way, pastor of knitting—best you know, like job title in history, I think. Um, <laughs> but but he's basically saying, listen." We have to be, as, as Canadians, as North Americans, as Western Christians, we have to step back and say, what exactly is it the church here, is here for? What function do we fulfill? And actually be honest about that, because unless we do, we are going to continue to drive this mechanism of the church further and further away from the gospel. Second Timothy. Now, by the way, for those of you who know me and how I teach, the fact that I'm bringing up scripture at, at, towards the end there, it's very unusual because I, I tend to have a lot of scripture in my, in my uh, sermon. The reason I wanted to teach this, this teaching this morning, the reason I wanted to kind of talk about it, is because it bookends where we started off with, with the church. And what started off with the church is simply this. What do you expect from a church? I planted Uptown Community Church almost three years ago now, and I planted it with this idea in mind. Uptown Community Church was going to be a place where we were going to create disciples of Jesus that we weren't going to entertain you. And if the worship didn't go right, if you didn't know the song or you don't know the worship song or or, or the, the the slide guy fell asleep and, you know, it was like two verses away and, and all that, we didn't believe that that's actually going to make God run away. And we didn't think that that was actually that important, actually, that God would be God and we would be his, his people looking towards him. And we as a community would come together and we'd figure this out together, that we wouldn't entertain you. But again, I... I don't want to be boring either, but I'm not going to juggle or give things away. Hey, come out to UCC. We're going to give out pizza and a skateboard and a TV. And you just get Jesus. It's kind of what you get. Now, what's interesting is Paul had the same problem back when he's writing to Timothy. Now, Timothy was, was a pastor in a place called Ephesus. And this is what Paul says to Timothy back then. But mark this. There will be terrible times in the last days. Stop there. Last days aren't today. Last days is when Jesus left. Everything from that point in time is the last days, just to be clear. People will be lovers of themselves, lovers of money, boastful, proud, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, without love, unforgiving, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not lovers of good, treacherous, rash, conceited, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, having a form of godliness, but denying its power, have nothing to do with such people. Everyone knows this passage. You've probably heard about this, but what you may not know is what verse 7 says. They're always learning but never able to come to a knowledge of the truth. I think that's so interesting because here's what Paul's saying. Is a culture is, is, is living and existing that's always looking for something new but not arriving at Jesus. And I know Paul wrote this a couple thousand years ago, but gosh, I feel like this is exactly what we're dealing with today. Today. That, and, and again, in 2 Timothy, he goes on to talk about how people will won't put up with sound teaching. They'll surround themselves with teachers that tell, say what their ears want to hear. You tell me what you want to hear, and I'll find you a PhD to tell you exactly that. A Christian one, by the way. What, what is it that you like? What is it you don't like? What is it you like about the Bible? You think the Bible's metaphor? Well, here's an entire book series and teachers on that. You think that uh, Jesus was one of many deities? Well, I got a teacher for that as well, too. What Paul was saying is, listen. Is going to come a time where people are going to stop thinking about Jesus and about themselves. It's it's an interesting concept to think about, but this verse seven that really frames it in a way that makes sense to me, that they will always be always learning, but never able to come to a knowledge of the truth. What more do you need from God to convince you that He is true and real? And that he deserves everything. Is, if, if I had a better, if I had maybe less words on the screen, would that be better? Or maybe one color? Or what if I was taller? What, what, what if I was this? Or what if I, had, like, maybe had clowns. Maybe not clowns, clowns are weird, but maybe something at the front there. Or what is it that can get you to convince you that Jesus loves you more? The answer is nothing. But the question isn't about what I can do. The question is what are you doing? See, one of the things I believe in is this: If you want God, you can go after Him. You can go after Him. I've spoken with drug addicts who have no jobs, who have no means of actual income, but they have a two, three hundred dollar a day oxycontin or cocaine habit. How I say to them, "Do you find the money to fund this habit?" They're like, "Oh, we find ways." And I know this is kind of an odd thing to think about, but that person understands that they're going to they're give everything up. They're going to give up a home. They're going to give up everything. They're going to beg. They're going to borrow. They're going to steal. They're going to do whatever they want to get this habit. I just wish this church would have that about Jesus a little bit more. That we wouldn't start saying, oh, this church is entertaining. Or if they had more lights, or if they had this, or, or the pastor did this. or Honestly, my sermons are what they are, like them or not, or not. But they are what they are. Am I going to try to get better? Absolutely. Am I going to try to talk slower? For sure. We'll get there one day. But the point is this. If you really want Jesus, there's nothing stopping you from getting him. If you want to grow in your faith, this church, this community is one way of doing it. And again, as I said before, if you're not finding it here, let us help you to find another church. We're one of the few churches that say, hey, we're not, we're not what's good for you. Let's help you find another one. Because there's some great churches in this area. Big churches, small churches, medium-sized churches, weird churches, cool churches, all churches out there. And if we're not that, I will help you to find something else. Why? Because all I really want is for people to become disciples of Jesus. That's what I want. Last words. It's important to talk to look at what Jesus says before he leaves. Jesus is gone Right? If you were going to go off to war, if you were going to go off to a long trip away, your final words would be kind of important. It's two things that Jesus is. Matthew 28, you heard of this of the Great Commission, right? Therefore, go and make disciples. Disciples. One of the things we forget about, Jesus doesn't care how many people profess his name. He doesn't care how people kind of even gather in his name. What he cares about is a disciple is a person who's living the life of Jesus, who's bearing fruit, who's growing, who is dying to themselves. We've kind of created a church that kind of does the exact opposite. In your updates, if you have them, top right-hand corner, welcome to Uptown Community Church. We're not here to entertain you. You're not here to perform. Gosh, I love that. I don't know where that came from. But I do like that because that's kind of who we are, right? What's our job? To make disciples, to be disciples, to, to, to live out the, 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 the passionate faith of Jesus, just to pursue that. And this mechanism where we meet, it only was by coincidence that we ended up in the theater. I had looked at other locations for the church when I planted it. It's just, this is what worked out for us. Like, great. This container is not spiritual. There's nothing spiritual about this. It's us when we come together. But look at the second part. Because that's not all Jesus says. I'm going to send you what my father's promise, but stay in the city until you've been clothed with power on high. How do you become a disciple of Jesus? By the power of the Holy Spirit. What do we do at UCC? Oh, gosh. I love the Holy Spirit. I love talking to people about the Holy Spirit. I love pursuing after him. I love, and I'm terrified with the things he asks of me. I absolutely am. We want to be a church that pursues after Jesus by the power of the Spirit, over the love of the Father. We want to be a Trinitarian church. That's who we are. And we're not perfect. We don't always get it right, and we change things, we alter things. Norm Malik, one of our elders here, he's an entrepreneurial guy. He's always saying, hey, this is what happens when you start something new. You've got to change things. You've to alter things. You've got to fix things. He's right. I wish I had it right right from the beginning, but I have not. The UCC, DCC, and anything else we do Kind of an experiment? Is it 100% right? Not even close. Am I perfect? My wife has a list of 100 things I do wrong. So just go see her after the service and she will, she'll get that to you, right? We're not perfect people. We pursue a perfect God. By his spirit, by his power. That's what we do. And if you're here this morning, you're visiting with us, and you're like, this is the weirdest sermon I've ever heard. Trust me, it gets weirder here. Um, <laughs> we would love to invite you to be a part of that and invite you to be part of that simply means how can we help you to grow to be a disciple of jesus and if your response is well if you could have this kind of a program or that kind of a worship or if you could sing good good father every sunday then i will love jesus more and my response to you is hey have you tried this church because that's not us it's not in your update you have a false schedule the false schedule is basically how do we find time to come together got a baptism service. It's about people. We've got a retreat. It's about people. We have a bowling night. We never keep score. It's about people. We like people. We love community. And we're not just saying that. We, everything we do is towards that. We want you to get to know one another. And if you're here and you're new and you're like, I don't know people, trust me. Give me a few seconds and I'll get you to know everybody. We want disciples. We want to be disciples of Jesus. We want to lay our lives down. Say, Lord, whatever it is you want for us. Let's pray.